you'd open your Bibles once again to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, as always, we want to thank you, Lord. I want to thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to be able to gather together to worship you because you have adopted us as your children. And Lord, you have given us all the blessings that come along with that, which is our eternal life and the fact that we have an eternal destiny. And that, Lord, we'll be in a place one day with you where there'll be no pain and no death and no sorrow. Now, Father, we look forward to that day. We also very much are very aware, Lord, that we are called to live for you here. And that as you have saved us, that, you have also, that you're also involved in transforming us into the image of your son, Christ. And Father, we, we want that to happen. We are very much aware of our own faults and our sins, which is why, Father, we together confess to you our wrongdoing as we seek to be better people, as we seek to become more aware of our sin and our sinful tendencies. And, Father, as we repent of those things and turn away from them and, and seek, Father, to live for you. And part of all of that, Father, is where we gather together as believers to focus on your word, to read what it says and to think about what it says, to study what it says. That, Father, it may become a part of us, that, we may, that you may impart your knowledge to us, that we may grow in wisdom and understanding. That, Father, we then may be better equipped to live for you in the world in which you've given us. And so, Father, as always, we are grateful for our, the time that we have to be able to spend in your word, and we wanted to thank you and ask for your blessing. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so as we've been working our way through the introduction to the book of Matthew, and we have started with verse 1, where we dealt with four words, the son of David, uh, we will now deal with the rest of verse 1 and some more. Uh, but verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. So Matthew here, right from the very get-go, identifies Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the title Christ means anointed one. Again, it is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. The term is referred to the long-awaited deliverer of God's people who's coming the prophets had foretold. As we discussed last week, Son of David is frequently used as a messianic title. The phrase identifies Jesus as the promised king who fulfills God's covenant with David. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> He's also called <coughs> Son of Abraham, which marks Jesus as the promised seed of the patriarch, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. These first, these first few words of Matthew's book introduces three primary theological themes. Number one, Jesus is the author of new creation. He is the one who is making everything new, a new beginning with his own followers. Jesus' power to recreate strongly implies his deity. Secondly, as the promised descendant of David, Jesus is the king whom God had promised would reign forever. And thirdly, as the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus is the one through whom all the peoples will be blessed. Jesus came not only to bless the Israelites, but the Gentiles as well, like the Magi, the Roman centurions, the Canaanite women mentioned later in Matthew. 
Jesus' deity, his authority, his transforming power, and indiscriminate compassion are emphasized from the very beginning of these opening words in the Gospel of Matthew. And so now we will get to everyone's favorite verses, beginning in verse 2. It reads, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihu, thank you, and Abihu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of uh, Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And after you read that for your morning devotional, you are ready to conquer the world uh, for the Lord. <laughs> so we do have to ask some questions, though, because everything in the Bible is there for a reason. And so Matthew records Joseph's genealogy. Why did he do that? Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph. He was not his biological son. So why does Matthew record Joseph's line of descent at all? Often, the answer given is something like this. Matthew's genealogy shows that, shows that Joseph was of the royal line of the house of David, that he was the heir apparent to the throne. Jesus, because he was adopted, could then claim the right to the throne. Well, actually, I believe Matthew's point is quite different. I believe his genealogy is proving that if Jesus was Joseph's biological son, he could not inherit the throne of David through Joseph. And we'll get to that as we go on. A couple things. Number one, in the Old Testament, there are two requirements given to sitting on the throne as the king. One of these uh, requirements was applied to the southern kingdom of Judah. Its capital was in Jerusalem. The other was applied to the northern kingdom and its capital, which was in Samaria. So the southern kingdom, you had to be a descendant of David to become king. That was it. The northern kingdom, to be king, you had to be chosen by God or sanctioned by a prophet. If you tried to be king without this, you would be assassinated. So let me read to you an example. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, it says, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So God here is sanctioning uh, Ahab and up to four generations to sit on the throne. Then, a few chapters later, in chapter 15 of 2 Kings, 
Beginning in verse 8, it reads, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Salem, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at uh, Eblium and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the promise that the, of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. So, the, so what's being presented here is this. Zechariah was the fifth generation and he was assassinated. He'd sin like his others, but they weren't assassinated. He was assassinated because he was not appointed by God. And so those are, the, those are the two requirements that you see in the Old Testament. When it comes to Matthew's genealogy, there are some names that were omitted. And so when you read through the commentaries, they all have their varying, varying ideas as to why some names were omitted. The, the easiest thing to go by, number one, is it was never Matthew's intent to be exhaustive. That's, he's not trying to give an an exhaustive genealogy of, Je of Joseph's line. And I, I gave a list of some of the names that uh, people believe are missing. Uh, that's just there. I'm not going to talk about them, but that's who's missing. Um, some of them are kings and, you know, different individuals, and they're, they're just not there. Some said, well, it was really because he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to have this nice and, nice and neat genealogy. You know, there's three sections of 14 names, and that was part of it. Uh, but he wasn't just trying to be f fancy uh, or streamlined just for a numerical reason. He was, he was emphasizing David uh, and, of course, wanted to emphasize that Jesus was the new David, so to speak. He was, he's, he's going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And we'll get into more of that as we work our way through Matthew. But omissions in genealogies, number one, is not all that uncommon. Matthew, as I said, is not trying to give an exhaustive accounting here. But he is emphasizing that there's a true line of descent. And as I said, the focus is on David. So then we get to the one part that most commentaries will all mention, and that is, because it's unusual for genealogies, especially during this time, where you mention women. And he mentions four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and he mentions the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. So some, and I think it's a good question, so why these names? Because there's some names of other women that are missing. It, when we say missing, it wasn't that they should be there, but they're thinking, if you want some women of significance, why are these women not mentioned? Why doesn't he mention Sarah? Why doesn't he mention Rebecca? Why, why these four? Well, a couple of things to note. Number one, all four of these women were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabitess. And Bathsheba was probably a Hittite. And again, that's notable because even though the primary purpose of Jesus' coming was for the lost sheep of Israel, the Gentiles would benefit. And we keep kind of throwing that in there because there was, this was kind of, I don't know how popular it was, but some have thought that Jesus came to the house of Israel and when they rejected him, God kind of said, oh, what do I do now? I know, I'll save the Gentiles. Like it was a last minute idea. But when you read from Genesis all the way through, it was always God's plan to save all kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, etc. There wasn't some last minute way to fix what had been broken. 
it was the plan of God. So the throwing in of these Gentile names was important to re-emphasize that. Because even, even back then, some of the Jews, uh, you know, they had a very low view of Gentiles. They would view them as dogs, etc. And so there, you know, there were some racial issues, so to speak, that were going on. Secondly, and this is why I think it's an, it's an important observation, three of these women were involved in very specific sexual sins. Bathsheba was guilty of adultery. Tamar was guilty of incest. Rahab was guilty of prostitution. And though Ruth was not guilty of committing sexual sin, this Moabitess, or the Moabites themselves, originated from the commission of a sexual sin as they were the product of an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. So what is the point of all of this? I think the point really is very simple. Jesus came to save sinners. And when Matthew writes this, remember that Matthew, at one time he was a tax collector. There are times in the Gospels that it talks about Jesus eating with sinners. Now, it wasn't Jewish belief that, that all of them weren't sinners. But they used the word sinners as a specific category. Those who were really bad off. Those who were like the worst of the worst. And that normally was two groups of individuals. Tax collectors, because they were seen as being traitors to Israel, maybe even being traitors to their faith, uh, because they were working for Rome and they were employed by Rome to do things on behalf of Rome. So they were very, viewed very, very lowly. And then those who were prostitutes. And there was varying ways to be a prostitute, but th those two groups, and so they would often all eat together because th that's who you had to have your friends with because you were the outcast. So Matthew understands what it's like to be in that group. And I think that what we need to remember is this, is that when it comes to, you know, we all know that we all sin. And we also know that when it comes to sexual sin, the New Testament talks a lot about sexual sin because there tends to be a unique stigma with sexual sins. There are often very great and long-lasting consequences of sexual sin. You know that if there's sexual sin within a, within a family, and that family, the, the mom and dad divorce, it will affect that entire family, and then those who are associated with the family for the rest of their lives, period. I think I've shared with you before, a long time ago, there, was, there were two very large studies done in our country where they were trying to answer this question. And the question is, is because and it's, it's in relationship to this. The relationship is, is that there's, there's this idea that people will say, well, we want to stay married, even though we're not getting along, for the sake of the children. And then when they graduate from high school, or maybe in some cases, when they graduate from college, then they'll be okay. And we can divorce and kind of, you know, go our separate ways, and it won't affect them. Or it won't affect them that much. So the question then that they're trying to discover the answer to is, so then at what age does the divorce or will the divorce of mom and dad no longer have a profound impact on the children? Is it age 18? Is it age, let's say, 22? At what age? And so they did this very large study, both of them, and they came to very similar conclusions. And the age that your children must be, so they'll be the youngest child, so that your divorce, if you're planning on a divorce, is not going to have a very large negative impact, would be about 32, which stunned all of them. They, they never imagined that it would be that. 
And so then, then of course, out of that flowed a lot of other studies as to, so what happens generally to children that come from broken homes? And so and you can imagine, and you're probably very familiar with these, there are, there are higher rates of alcoholism, there are higher rates of suicide, there are higher rates, and it just goes on and on and on. And then of course, then from, within those groups, there's higher rates of divorce, higher rates of all, all kinds of things. And so sexual sin is, has got a unique place in the way that it affects others. But also just think about how it affects us in our own psyche. So. Imagine this. So we have someone who comes to our church and, they're, and, they've, and they've just become a believer, a brand new believer. And let's say that they were involved in using cocaine and selling cocaine for a long time. And they had, they had beaten people for drug money. And they had, I mean, there's all a long list of things they had done. And that person's come to Christ and, and, and they've, you know, they've repented. And we would welcome them with open arms and you know, which would be the norm, and we would all, everything would be, in a sense, great. But would it be different, at least for some, if a young lady came here who had just gotten saved, and she was a prostitute. She'd been a prostitute for a long time. Well, we're going to welcome her, but she's not talking to my husband. Well, well why, why would she not be allowed to talk to your husband? Well, you know. No, I don't. On the one hand, someone has repented of their sin, and we welcome them. On the other hand, a person has repented of their sin, and now we have conditions. Because we think about it differently. Right? It affects us differently. We may view that person differently for a long time. We, that may continue to come up. They may do something that we think is kind of questionable. And normally we won't say, well, you know, they were a drug addict. I mean, that, 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 that can happen, but not normally. But on the other side, well, you know what she used to do. It happens a lot. Sexual sin has a stigma. It, 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 it has, I guess you could even say there's an aroma that is carried around by that individual if they're guilty of that sin. Matthew mentions them because he wants us to understand that Jesus came to save sinners, period. I, I think in our country, it's our, part of our culture, we don't intend to do this, but many of us in church, especially we've been saved for a long time, we, and we would never say this because we know it's wrong, but we kind of have a sense of this. That even though I'm saved by the death of Christ and I, and I did not deserve salvation and all those things, I'm not as bad as some others. In, in some sense, I'm a little more deserving. I mean, I wasn't as bad as that person. We, there, we, there's a category. Somewhere there's a category distinction that we make. And we put ourselves in the better one. And we put that person in the worst one. And, and there's going to be more mistrust there. there there's there's going to be a stigma there. It's going to be there. And we've we got to get away from that. 
It's like I told you one time when I was, when I was a jail chaplain, and I would preach in many different churches at times. Where, and I, the lady, I think, meant nothing bad by this, but she still said this. And she came to me after the service, and she said, I'm just so glad that you're there ministering in the jail. Because, you know, they really need Jesus. So just think about that. I mean, what does that mean? Do they really need Jesus and we need Jesus a little bit? I mean, it kind of implies that, doesn't it? I mean, their life is so bad. They really need Jesus. And your son really needs Jesus. And they, would, they may not like hearing that in the same context. It would bother them. So we, we do need to do maybe some more self-examination in recognizing, number one, the, really the depth of our sin. And that it is truly by God's grace that we are saved and God's absolute goodness. That Jesus did not bleed for you, but died for others. It, your salvation and my salvation required his death. But that there really is no one that is beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so he uses these women on purpose. He knows how this culture then is viewing these women. This is, this is a bold stroke that Matthew makes when he writes the names of these individuals. They, they, all the people he's writing to, they know the history of Israel. They know who these women are. They recognize them. He knows what they're guilty of. He, he's, and he's not trying to say they're not as bad as you think. He's not saying any of that. And, and he's letting them know that they're in the line of David. You know, Joseph's descended from these people. And, and there was a belief that, again, there's a stigma. You know, the fact that Ruth was a Moabitess. I mean, there's, there's this idea if, if you meet someone who is the product of an incestuous relationship, we mm, just kind of like, and there's this whole group of individuals that are from this, and they're, they're not viewed very well. And there's a belief that, so the stench of what Lot did with his daughters it's almost as if that stench is passed down to, to, their, to their offspring and their offspring and their, for generations to come. You can't get rid of it. Jesus came to save people like that. It's, and we know that intellectually. We know that. But sometimes even we hesitate to reach out to certain people. We hesitate to embrace certain people because of whatever their sin happens to be. We, we, need, we, we need to be different. We, we need to work on that. And, and part of, you know, cause some, and some people say, well, yeah, I understand, but you know, now, but we, got, we, we have to be careful now because we don't want to put ourselves in a vulnerable position. That's true, you don't, but that's why we have a church. We hold each other accountable. We are doing all these things together. We do this. So if a woman was a prostitute for 20 years and she comes, becomes a believer and she becomes a member of our church, we as a family embrace her. We do this together. We do keep an eye on each other. But that also includes keeping an eye on her to make sure she's not ostracized. That's what that means. To make sure she is included. To make sure that she is treated as if she is normal. And just think about it for a minute. If you are in the unfortunate situation where you have a daughter who ends up in that lifestyle. How would you want a church to treat her 
if she repents and comes to Christ? Would you want to have to give excuses for the church and the way they treat her? Would, would you feel like you have to go and rescue her from that church to go to another one? They, we can't do that. So I think that it's something where when we read through this, you can easily just kind of rip right through those names. But we need to stop and think, why did Matthew include them? Why these Gentile women? Because it's not, there's no way to say it was just a coincidence that they all have wrapped in their entire history sexual sin. And that's why he does that. We have been stigmatized by our sins and the sins of others, and that's one of those things that does that. One commentator did say this as, you kind of, as we move through this. He says, in each of these cases, the Gentile, that's the, one of these women, showed extraordinary faith in contrast to Jews who were greatly lacking in faith. The faith of Tamar versus Judah. Rahab versus the entire wilderness generation. Ruth versus Israel during the time of the judges. Now Bathsheba's name is not given, but the name of her husband. Perhaps it is because the focus should be on Uriah's faith in contrast to David's at the time. But through all this, God remained faithful in preserving the Messianic line, and in some cases, through godly Gentiles. God does things very differently than we would do them. God never makes mistakes and does these things purposely. There's always, there are always reasons why God does the things that he does. It's the same way that we approach our life, right? When if evil happens to us, whether we get a disease or something, some tragedy hits our family, we know that God is sovereign. But we know that, it's, that God's not in heaven fretting because he, he didn't see it coming. We know that, that God is not weak where he couldn't have prevented it from happening. But what we console ourselves with is that even though I don't have the information, and God may never give it to me, God has his reasons why this has happened. And those reasons will be good reasons because God is good and God is just. I may not like the reasons or like what's happening, but God can be trusted, period. So everything happens for a reason. The same thing happens here with this. Matthew, I think, is highlighting one of his goals. He is reminding the Jews of God's allegiance to Israel that even in the midst of all of this filth and this sin and these, these people that are messing things up, God is faithful, working in and through these things because he's a covenantal-keeping God. And he's going to keep his promises to Abraham and he's going to keep his promises to David. That's where we get our assurance from when we, when we mess up as sinners. When we mess up, because, and we may mess up big time. How do you know that if, that if you die, you're still going to go to heaven? Because God is faithful. I'm not, but he is. I am counting on God's faithfulness. And God has revealed himself to be faithful through all the pages of Scripture. And we also see evidence of that in our lives as well, that God is faithful. And we need to remember that. And that's important because there are times when even Christians can mess up really big. Matthew wants his audience to understand that the coming messianic kingdom, about the coming kingdom, he wanted them to be empathetic to Gentiles 
who would soon become part of the body of the Messiah. And of course, that was accomplished by adding Gentile names to this genealogy. When you move on and reading through the scripture, you'll come across some, uh, a story, some stories in, in the Bible. You get into the Acts and then also understand what's going on in the Ephesians. That there was this division between the Gentiles and Jewish believers. And what is emphasized, and what Paul emphasized, is that we are one new man in Christ. All right? And so it's always been part of God's plan. We have to get over these issues that we have with other people, regardless of their background and whatnot. I find this interesting. The theme of Matthew is basically that Jesus is the Messianic king. He's the Messianic king of the Jews. Jewish history begins with Abraham. Matthew begins there with Abraham. And he traces the line forward to the first century, to King David. From David's many sons, he chose one, Solomon. And he traced the line to Jeconiah. So look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So according to Matthew, Joseph was a direct descendant of David through Solomon, but also through Jeconiah. That is the one fact that means that Joseph could not have been the heir apparent to David's throne. I remember when I was young hearing in Sunday school someone saying this, the Sunday school teacher, that if Israel had been ruling themselves, then Joseph would have been the king. Because he was in the line of David and they kind of go through genealogy, but that's actually not true. What we do know is he could have never been the king. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. The reason is given for this. Now when I read it, I'm going to, I'll be using the word Coniah. That's what's in the Bible. Coniah is just a shortened form of Jeconiah. So it's the same individual. So in Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning of verse 24, it reads, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, King of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So in the days of Jeremiah, God pronounced a curse on King Jeconiah because of the kind of man he was. He would be taken into Babylonian captivity. He would spend the rest of his life in Babylon. He would die there. Then God calls upon the earth three times to hear the following. No descent of Jeconiah would ever have the right to sit on the throne. That's what we tell him being childless. The idea with all these things combined is that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne, ever. So Matthew then was not including Joseph's genealogy to show that Jesus could claim a legal right to the throne as Joseph's adopted son. It looks like he purposely presents what would be called the Jeconiah problem, and then he immediately solves it with the account of the virgin birth, the conception and birth of Jesus. Jesus was not the real son or the biological son of Joseph. There was no biological connection, so there is no Jeconiah problem. Now he had to do that because remember, that whenever you have what would be called a messianic movement, 
Anyone who's causing a stir in Israel and there's these rumblings that this individual may be the Messiah. The Pharisees and the ruling party, they, they, would, they would go and they would be checking this individual out. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to the temple. Because that's where the records are. And they're going to look at that man's descendants. They're going to look at his genealogy, at his family. They're going to find out who that guy is. That makes all the difference in the world. Because if this guy is not qualified by birth to be the Messiah, they're, they're, he's going to be found out. So I guarantee you when they go back to the temple and they look up, they look up uh, to see the, descent, the, uh, the ancestry of, of Joseph, his dad, or the one they think is his dad, there's a problem. This guy is not king of the Jews. He can never be that. But you know, there's, you read through the scriptures, there's not a whole lot of argument about that. I think many of them kind of knew there was this idea that he was the illegitimate son to a degree because they don't believe that God was his father. But the idea that he's disqualified because of Jeconiah, that doesn't come up because it's already been dealt with. It's, it's already common knowledge. And here, Matthew goes right back to that and deals with that issue. Because, there are, because you know there will be many who will come afterwards, they don't like Jesus. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. If there's any way we can disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah, man, that would be easy. There's nothing to discuss. It doesn't matter what he did or said. Look at his ancestry. He's disqualified. Case closed. That's not the case. Now, there is a small problem that this also brings up. We'll deal with it very quickly. In the Bible, tribal identity ethnic identity or nationalistic identity are determined normally by the father's line, not the mother's. What is, what, that is the norm, but what if a Jewish woman marries a Gentile? Then the child follows the mother's pedigree and is Jewish. Because some people, you know, if you read through all these different books, sometimes they say, well, the Jewishness is always traced to the mother. It is not. It's always traced to the father. But in the case where a Jewish woman marries a Gentile, they don't lose their Jewishness. It is now traced through the mother. And that has been the Jewish tradition for all of these years, and that would have been the case then. So, so there's no problem with that. So it's not like, it's, it's not we're saying, well, we don't know who his father was. He could be a Gentile, so he's just, no, none of that. Because it is traced through the mother. Now, that's not the end. There are, as I said, there are a few anti-Messianic groups that state that since the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke clearly show that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, again, he cannot even claim to be from the tribe of Judah, but he can be because Luke's genealogy is Mary's. We'll deal with that one day, not today. Um, but he could call himself the son of David. So the assumption is that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that Mary was an immoral woman. So their biblical arguments would prove to be irrefutable if Jesus was merely a human. But God had a plan. And this issue is a non-issue. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The future Messiah will be the seed of a woman. No one knew how that was going to happen. But it's resolved here. What are, it, it all just comes together. It all fits together perfectly. The future Messiah will be the seed of a woman. He will be reckoned after the seed of a woman and not a man. The, then Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which prophesies that the Messiah will be conceived and born of a virgin. The uniqueness of the Messiah is that he will have only one biological parent, the mother. There, today, there are some who've said, they, 
in various arguments when it gets into political kinds of things or social movements, sometimes I've heard this, the argument is, or the statement is, is that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that Mary was a single mother. And that's kind of used, I guess, I don't know if it's used to get people to feel sorry for a certain group or raise money or whatever. First of all, Mary was not a single mother. She married Joseph. That's not what she was, period. She was not immoral. Jesus' birth was not illegitimate. He had a father. It was a, a miraculous birth, but remember, it was God, the Father, who did all of these things. And so that just, I, you know, I, know, I think people sometimes think they're clever when they figure these things out and start saying stuff like that. It's just not a good thing. When you go back, what are you, what are you trying to say? What's being communicated? What is Matthew telling us? Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Jewish God, man, king, and he does not fit the normative mold, but he is clearly all of those things. And so once again, what we see here is that in spite of all these different, I guess you might want to call them hiccups, there are no hiccups in God's plans. It just doesn't go the way that we think it would go, or maybe should go. And that God's plans are being carried out in the exact way that he decided they would be carried out. And then when he does all these things, he does them for a reason. And he's doing this because he wants to continue to send you and I a message. Not a secret message. It's a message that is there that we can see if we're willing to look at it uh, correctly. And the message is this. Is that I know that God has saved me by his grace because God has come to save all men from all kinds of nations, tribes, tongues, etc. And that no matter how bad my sin is, Jesus came to save sinners. And I'm in good company. And that I'm, I may be a Gentile, because I'm certainly not Jewish, and that is of no consequence. Zero consequence. He is my Messiah. He is my Savior. Amen. And I am part of that promise that God has made. And God has proven that despite all these things, he's faithful to his word. He's keeping his covenant to Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, he's keeping that. The Davidic covenant, he's keeping that. And I'm under the new covenant. I have no worries. Because he has bound himself to these covenants through an oath that he has taken. And God never goes back on his word in any way, shape, or form. What, a, what wonderful news that that is. And so once again, if you don't know who you are, and you are searching for identity, or if you are feeling that you are outside of the group or outside of your family, or you are looking for an identity, you want, to, you want to be involved in a group, you want to be received, you want to be welcomed, you want to be loved, then the family of God is for you. God seeks to deal with the number one problem that you have, which is you're separated from God. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our purpose. I mean, the only way that you can be identified with God is for that sin to be dealt with. And of course, the problem with that is that the, the wages of sin is death. It is eternal damnation. You will be separate from God for all of eternity. How, how do you fix that? Well, you can't. No one can. You're stuck. And you are condemned for all of eternity. Unless someone else does something. And there's only one other someone else. And that someone else is the, is the one who's perfect in every way. And God sent his son Christ to come and live in this world as we see he came as the perfect God-man. Born of a virgin lived the perfect life, 
And as we already know, and we will get to this as we move through Matthew, he not only lived a perfect life, but came to willingly lay his life down to receive and to be punished for our sin, to die and then to be buried and then to rise again from the dead. And if we put our trust in him, that gift is ours and we are forgiven. And we now belong to the family of God and we find our identity and our purpose in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful for the details. Father, we know that uh, sometimes it's easy to kind of skip through names. There are times when there are important messages and thoughts that come out of a genealogy. And Lord, this one we, we see clearly and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that there was no one that is outside the reach of grace. We thank you, Lord, that Christ has come to save sinners, of which, Father, we are definitely one. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us the ability and the desire to view everyone else through the eyes of Christ, to have compassion, care, to understand what's going on in their lives, why they act the way they act, and to realize, Lord, as we all really do, that the answer is Christ, and that the only way to resolve their issues is to deal with the most important issue first, and that is the issue of their spiritual state and that they are incomplete and will always be incomplete regardless of what happens in life until that's addressed and we thank you lord that you have given to us a gift that is accessible to all men and all we need to do is believe in christ so we ask lord you would open their eyes that they may see and understand the gospel of jesus and that you would regenerate their heart granting them faith to believe in christ and Lord, how we will rejoice with the angels in heaven over each one that comes to know Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to, by your Spirit, use your word to dwell in our hearts and minds, and that we would think about it often as we seek to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, once again, that Jesus is the Savior of all men. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen.